1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher. And I'm very pleased to have back on the podcast, Jeff Jarvis, to tell us all about another one of his books. If you've listened to previous episodes, we last heard from Jeff about his book, Magazine. But today, we're here to talk about his book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me again, Miranda. It was a pleasure. Pleasure to talk last time. I look forward to this conversation.
1: Likewise. Before we get into this book, however, in case some of our listeners did not listen to the previous episode, fair enough, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit again and then explaining the backstory to this
0: book? Certainly. I'm Jeff Jarvis. I am now a professor at the uh, Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. I'm a faux academic, only a journalism professor. I don't have a PhD, um, but I enjoy being able to spend the time that the academe allows to research and write books like these. I, um, I'm a journalist from longstanding an old magazine and newspaper guy, and uh, I'll soon be air quotes retiring from CUNY and moving uh, elsewhere to, uh, to teach and work on more books. As for the Gutenberg parenthesis, um, the book I wanted to write originally, the, th- the theme that constantly fascinates me is the creation and the impact of the idea of the mass and mass media. Because I am a creature of mass media. I've worked at it. I've lived through it. I've helped create some of it. And I see the the dangers and risks and problems with treating people as a mass. So I read a lot of sociology on the topic and finally decided that I was not qualified to write that book. At the same time, I had become long fascinated with the story of Johannes Gutenberg, and saw him as an or entrepreneur. Uh, He had to solve technological problems and finance problems and so on to to create movable type. And uh, I I started a program in entrepreneurial journalism. So I used that as an object lesson for how to think of entrepreneurship long before Silicon Valley. I wrote a little piece uh, about Gutenberg as the first nerd uh, for Wired Magazine in Germany. And then I came across uh, the theory of the Gutenberg parenthesis, which comes from three academics at the University of Southern Denmark, Tom Pettit, Lars Ole Sauerberg, and Marianne Borch. Um, and that gave me the glue and the structure to finally see a book here. So the first half of this book is a loving history of print as technology, and then its spread and development and impact. And the second half of the book, I try to apply what I think are what I see as lessons from the entry into our age of print to the um, our exit from it, as we now go into whatever fo- this is that follows this age of the of the worldwide network of ubiquitous data of the thinking machine uh, of digital whatever we or our descendants choose to call it.
1: Thank you for that introduction. Um, A bunch of things there that I can now ask you about in more detail. So thanks for starting us off so usefully. Um, I think the obvious place to start is not only the fact that it's the title of the book, but also that you've mentioned it a tiny bit already. Can you tell us more about what the Gutenberg parenthesis
0: is? So the theory from these Southern... Uh, Denmark uh, or University of Southern Denmark academics, uh, which Tom Pettit brought to the U.S. in a talk uh, at MIT, which I watched on video, and, and Tom, to his consternation, became a demi celebrity among internet folk. It says that the age of print is an exception in the grand sweep of history, and Tom is is quick to point out that that in the U.S. we call parenthesis, the symbols themselves, but in the U.K. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Miranda. The parenthesis refers to what is inside them.
1: Yeah, we're, we're not fully unified on that one, but I that sounds about right. Uh,
0: as long as we agree about the Oxford comma, we'll be fine. <laughs> um, so um, the argument here is that before print, uh, and, and let me be quick to point out, by the way, that movable type was created in China and Korea before it was created in mines by Gutenberg. Um, but before the explosion of, of print culture, so to speak, starting in Europe, uh, ideas and thoughts and information were passed around mouth to mouth in a conversational society. It was changed along the way. There was really no sense of ownership or authorship of stories. Um, the business model was clear. One scribe, one book, one patron in a long time. The goal of the scribes was to preserve the knowledge of the ancients, come the humanists. And so that was what we saw before print. Come print culture, uh, things changed rather radically over time. Uh, Our cognition of the world changes. uh, As Marshall McLuhan would say, Uh, The line, and this sentence is an example, became our organizing principle. Things became contained inside these containers of covers and books with alpha and omega and a neat beginning and a neat ending and that presumption about the world. Uh, Eventually, around 1700, uh, two and a half centuries after Gutenberg, came a business model for print in the guise of copyright and the sense of ownership of this thing of property that we now came to think of as content um and um we no longer honored the ancients with print um uh, in fact pretty soon after the advent of print the market was completely saturated with that and the business was in shambles uh but um uh instead now we honor frau dr so and so the author of a book we we honor the expert <clears throat> and so that is life for a half a millennium inside print and there's much debate read as whether or not there's such a thing as print culture or was there such a thing as scribal culture. This is an argument that was held uh, around the work of Dr. Elizabeth Eisenstein, who is said to be the person who really created the field of book history um, and who I greatly admire and who triggered a lot of my desires in writing this book. But let's just say for a second that there's something called print culture that lasted for half a millennium that we're still in just a scribal culture continued probably until the typewriter. But now we're at the other side of this parenthesis. We're leaving it. And Pettit would be quick to say that it's not a sharp line. It is a departure that could take decades, generations, even centuries. But we, the, the, the primacy of print is being superseded by the primacy of digital and the internet. doesn't mean print disappears, but it does start to show us how our cognition of the world changes yet again. And so now, rather than seeing the world in this uh, linear fashion with neat beginnings and endings, we come to a web, a worldwide web, where knowledge is um, once again passed around click by click. It's changed along the way. Uh, It's not a straight line, but a constellation of links and, and offshoots going every which way. The business model is no longer clear. That's why we're fighting over copyright once again and we no longer honor the ancients or God help us the experts. But as my friend David Weinberger uh, has said in his books, uh, the smartest person in the room is the room itself. It's the network that brings us all together. And one could argue that that's what AI tries to do as well. So the Gutenberg Parenthesis simply tries to delineate that exception in history. When I first met Pettit over lunch, Uh, I said, well, what a coincidence. And he basically said, no, you idiot. It's not a coincidence. The point is that we have the opportunity to return to presumptions before. Now, one need be careful of periodization. Uh, Pettit, by the way, is not a geek or not a geek of modern sense. He's a medievalist. And he believes that what we're doing is returning to potentially an almost medieval sense of the world, of a conversational world. And we have the opportunity to recapture some of what we might have lost in the age of print, though we will not forget what we bring with us from print.
1: So I think that this is a really helpful conception uh, for a number of reasons, and I think we're probably going to take our discussion sort of into the parenthesis through it and then sort of back out again, um, much as the book does. But from an initial starting point, just hearing kind of that overall conception of it, um, the first thing, even reading it in the book, really kind of made me go, hang on a second, of course that's true. Why isn't that part of the conversation? Um, Is, of course, the idea we have now of oh no, we've never had this before. We don't know what to do. What does it mean to be a writer? What does it mean to be a content creator? This is a whole new world, a whole new debate. And yet, as you remind us in the book, um, that was very much the experience of, for example, the scribes coming into the parenthesis. What does it mean when this whole model that's been there for ages is very disruptive? This is not, in fact, the first time we've had to think anew and have kind of what we expect to happen jumbled up. So what do you think we can learn if we do look back to the experiences of writers and scribes coming into the parenthesis as the printing press develops and becomes more prevalent? What can we learn from them to help us understand and maybe contextualize where we're at now?
0: I think we can learn much. I mean, the 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 commonly held belief is the scribes were put out of work, and it must be miserable. Well, some scribes uh, found the work of um, writing manuscripts <clears throat> misery, and wanted to be put out of work. Uh, many of them, of course, were were in uh, religious orders, and there were those their bosses who said, "No, no, no! Don't put down your pen because uh, scribal uh, creation of manuscripts and Bibles." is a godly act. It is an act of contemplation and you must continue doing it. Uh, Some professional scribes, people who made their money doing this, objected to losing their work, not unsurprisingly, and also to the loss of the value of the products of that work, that now that things can be manufactured, that we find something in abundance. So scribes, in a sense, I think had to adapt, some more happily than others, Some of them, though, also absolutely loved books and loved the ability to get more of them and to collect libraries of them for the first time in their lives. Also interesting, I think, Miranda, to look at the authors of the time and later. Um, Cervantes, of course, wrote what is claimed to be the first modern novel in Don Quixote about a character who was driven mad by books. And in that, he's trying to grapple, I think, with what happens to our minds in this new medium. And then Victor Hugo in Notre Dame famously has the archbishop point to the cathedral and then point to the book and say, one will destroy the other. The book will destroy the cathedral. And now we worry about what might destroy the book. I don't think anything will, by the way, but but it's still a concern we have. And you're absolutely right. In a period of change, fears necessarily arise. And it's not just at the technology. It's also sometimes at the voices who can now be heard who were not heard before. I think that's what we see on the internet more than anything else is that um, a media world that was controlled by people who look like me, you can't see me, but you probably can guess, I'm an old white man, uh, is now challenged online by communities who can now be heard thanks to these new tools. And it is those who controlled the tools before and controlled speech before who most resent and fear that. And I think that's what we're seeing in great measure today.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Um, And I do think it's kind of interesting to frame things in language we're used to now um, and go, wait, that is actually probably what people were experiencing then. Um, But of course, the fears are for a reason, right? Both now and then. There really are some pretty big changes happening, um, not just at the individual voices level, but the thing that allows that, right? Big institutional, infrastructural changes um, that you know enable people's voices to come out as they hadn't before. So if we think within the parentheses then, what do you think were some of the most significant institutional changes caused by the printing press?
0: One of the things that Elizabeth Eisenstein points out that I think is important is that it's not just the book that was created, and it's not just text that was created. It was also illustration, and it was also ephemeral material, <clears throat> um, because forms could now be printed, including, by the way, indulgences. Uh, bureaucracy grew, the collection of data grew, uh, uh, governments grew. I think that was that was critically important. Also, obviously, with print uh, after after. Uh, the, the the kind of the fall of the industry around 1500. The first 50 years of print are known as the incunabular phase or the infant phase, in which print largely tried to mimic and mechanize and speed up and scale and improve the work of the scribes. But come the turn of that century, print began to take on the attributes that we now know in books with. For example, titles and title pages and indices and page numbers and paragraph indentations and so on. And um, it was around that time, as I said earlier, that the business of print was in shambles because too much money had fled into this new industry, sound familiar? And the market was sated for the work of the ancients. And various printers beseeched the Pope saying, I've got warehouses filled with this stuff and nobody's buying it. Well, what came along then, of course, was Martin Luther in 1517, who may or may not have tacked his theses on the church door, but certainly did have them printed. And he made some very important decisions. One was to print, um, and two was to do so in German, thereby creating a public. Jurgen uh, Habermas would argue that, that the public sphere did not come until the coffee houses of London. With the magazines in them in the 1700s. But I believe, uh, along with others here, that a a public can be seen created by Luther who wanted to, to convince that public of something to speak in their language. And thereby, he also started to standardize German in his own translation of the Bible and thereby also created the sense of nationhood. Uh, Even before the German nation itself came into official form, the idea of Germanness and the German language started to reach standardization. Uh, Umberto Eco has this great line saying that um, dialects are languages without an army and a navy. Well, now languages became the the demarcation of nations And, and that's hugely changing, I think. Also, obviously, literacy grows because books are more available. Um, Students don't have to be read to. They can read on their own. Silent reading uh, became very important, I think, as a way that you could think on your own without having to do so in public. Um, And uh, new ideas could be formulated in that way, which I I think is, is quite important. Uh, And of course, once again, once new voices can be heard, not new voices, voices previously not heard, then fear will come and censorship will soon follow. Uh, And so the the Catholic Church started its Index of Forbidden Books, which lasted until the 1960s, futilely trying to keep voices down and instead creating a bunch of bestsellers along the way. But that sense of official speech and speech that is allowed and dangerous speech we see going to today... When you have just passed uh, the UK online safety bill is all about harmful speech, this fear of these voices continues to this day. And then you create bureaucracies in Ofcom in the UK um, and uh, three or four agencies in France and so on to try to control that speech because it's going to get out of hand. Uh, So there's... The Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. There's the the action and the and the and the reaction that constantly uh, came. I think in this period, which is you know fascinating to watch, and I think we have a lot to learn from it.
1: Mm, definitely. Um, even as you were describing that, I think. I'm not the only one listening kind of going, "Mm -hmm, yep, tick, I remember that that's happening now. Yep. Oh, that one too. Okay. Yep. There we go. Um, There are rather a lot of parallels to draw. Um, Moving forward in the book, I wanted to ask you about something that I think maybe does tell us kind of almost where we're going in a sense, I mean, to some extent, obviously we can't predict the future, but there's a really interesting um, bit of history that you highlight in the book that I wonder if it does maybe predict something. there's obviously a number of things that rely on the printing press uh, to, as you said, kind of create coherent business models eventually, um, and wouldn't work if it was a scribal culture, just given the quantity. Um, so I'm talking about the birth of the novel, the idea of an essay, and the development of a market for printed plays, um, not just a few copies, but really, you know, a bigger, a bigger deal in quantity. And I hadn't really put together that all three of these things happen pretty much at the same time as each other, but a while after what we've just been talking about, right? This is not immediately after the creation of the printing press. Um, it's, it's 100 plus years afterwards. What do you think kind of explains this, I suppose, gap? Even Is it even a gap between the technology and the form factors that rely on it? And why do you think this sort of happens when and how it does?
0: It's a fascinating question, to which, of course, I don't have an answer, but but I'm happy to speculate. Um, so a century and a half after Movable Type, Gutenberg's Bible came off the press about 1454. Shortly before 1600, Montaigne invents the essay and names it. And I think thereby brought on a huge change in society. He created a form. He also, I think, raised the bar for inclusion in public discourse to require the skill of writing, which stands with us to this day. 1605, uh, Cervantes publishes Don Quixote, said to be the first modern novel, uh, which I I think was also critical because it was a a new narrative form, obviously, but also a new way to put yourself in other people's shoes and try to think like them and see like them and have empathy with them. Uh, I think that was obviously hugely important culturally. Uh, Around this time, too, Shakespeare is proving that a market for printed plays, not just performed plays, uh, is important. And uh, Another one to mention, because at the same time, 1605 is the creation of the newspaper. So all of this change comes a century and a half later. Why? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, It could be because um, the innovation was no longer able to be controlled. It could be because it took that long to gestate ideas. I think it might be because it took that long for the technology itself to become so boring and so commonplace that what mattered, what was interesting was not the technology, but what could be done with it. And... I think we can see that again today. And I don't mean to say that there are that history repeats itself, but again, I think there are lessons from the past. We still see the internet as a technology. Journalists still cover the internet in the technology beat, in the corporate technology Silicon Valley beat, when the internet is instead a human network. And what happens on there for good and ill is not about the technology, it's about us and what we choose to create there, good and bad. And, and so I think we need to recognize that it may take time before we get to that opportunity for bold innovation and creation that we saw around 1600. It may take time before we look past the technology and the technologists. I can't wait for that. Um, and become as inventive as Montaigne and Cervantes and Shakespeare were in their time. Um now, this is the one contention I have in the book that I think gets me the most disagreement. People say, well, I say, we have time. Uh, not to say that there aren't urgent questions on the table right now, but, but, but this, this transition, this, this other side of the parenthesis could, as I said earlier, go on decades, generations, or even centuries. And some people say, well, no, Jarvis, can't you see the change is happening so quickly, more quickly than it's ever occurred before? Well, I don't know that I I buy that. Number one, that the change may be just beginning. There may be much more change than we can even imagine ahead of us. Uh, And in the time of print, that change was pretty damn momentous. It also seemed to happen quickly. Print spread very quickly across Europe. Um, But the full impact of it, the full realization of what one could do with it, took time. And I think... Given the momentousness of this invention of the connected world today, uh, if it is anything like that of print, uh, and that's a contention I make that one can disagree with, I think it will still take time. And unfortunately, I won't live to see how it turns out. I'm too old.
1: Well, but I think more importantly, it's it's the piece that you sort of mentioned, the idea of years, generations, centuries. I think it's the generations piece that's worth highlighting. Because it's about, as you said, making it so technology is unremarkable. And that's about forming habits, right? That's behaviors, that's expectations, that's very human. And we know that in so many different areas, um, that does take literally generational and therefore centuries, but the generation piece is kind of the one that makes the difference. Um, so I'm kind of wishing now, you know, what if we could go four generations in the future? Um, what might we see? Um because there are, you know, the same way that your book is helping us go generations back to make some comparisons. Um, And I'd love to ask you about another comparison that you make in the book. Um, One that, to be honest, I think this particular one could kind of deserve an entire book of its own, (laughs) Uh, but I'm glad it's in this one to bring it into this conversation. One aspect of mass printing that We sometimes maybe forget when we talk about the printing press, we often focus on the religious element, the books element, but there's also the newspapers and the news side of what the printing press enabled. Can you maybe talk about the impact that this had on how people behaved and expected and how today's technology is maybe changing that?
0: As a journalist, obviously, I'm fascinated with this. Uh, for uh, for a book that has been written about this that I recommend highly is a- Andrew Pedigree's The Invention of News. Um, Andrew's books have been on this network. I'm glad to see. He's a brilliant scholar of book history at St. Mm-hmm. Andrew's. Um, and Andrew points out that there were many forms of news before. The newspaper was not an invention of the idea of news because clearly, obviously, once print came around, you could have proclamations from the government put up. Uh, there were news books, uh, that is to say, there were pamphlets that were about specific events. Obviously, Martin Luther had a key role here. Much of what he put out were, were, were pamphlets, flugschriften or flying type, because they were short and quick and cheap and easy to do. There were ballads. This is what fascinates Tom Pettit of the Gutenberg Parenthesis, that news was passed around in ballads, including, by the way, disinformation and propaganda and witchcraft and such. Um, Uh, News was presented in song by traveling minstrels uh, and in song sheets that were bought and put up in the pub to sing and with lyrics that changed uh, to known tunes so they could be be sold. Some of these people traveled with paintings of the events they were singing about. And and as you and I discussed in our prior conversation, eventually would come another form called the magazine. So the newspaper was not necessarily self-evident. It was birthed directly out of the handwritten newsletters, the Avisi of the time, which were a product for the privileged. They were expensive. There were only a few copies. They were about the rich and powerful getting inside information. So you knew what was coming off the ships in Venice and you could make your financial bets as a result, or you knew what prince was visiting, what prince to worry about the alliances. So in 1605, Johannes Corellus in Strasbourg uh, had bought... Uh, a printing press from the widow of a printer. And he was already selling his, a VC, his handwritten newsletter. And he said to himself, obviously, well, what the heck? I could make a lot more of these now. And so he applied for a, a license, an exclusive license to the city, which did not grant it, but he went ahead with his business anyway. And by the way, it lasted for quite a bit of time. And as with print itself, this innovation spread pretty quickly across Europe. In the form. Interestingly, it was not the form of journalists that we think of today. It was um, the, 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 the credibility of the VC or the newsletter or newspaper publisher was in taking accounts and repeating them verbatim uh, and not adding perspective and not adding headlines and not uh, adding prioritization. They were dull but important publications. Newspapers developed quite a bit as it went on and did start to develop a tone and a voice. Um, But some innovations, like the idea of the interview, was a very controversial thing that came not until late 19th century that was seen as a bit of a corrupting influence. Um, Other changes would come that would have huge impact on our idea of news, most notably the Telegraph, which... um, and you know it was said to kind of eliminate context and make everything break everything a sameness and take away the priority of local. Uh, interestingly, by the way, newspapers at first avoided local news because that's why he got in trouble with the authorities. International news was a lot safer, and people in small villages knew what was going on anyway. So this idea of local took time to come as well. So yes, I think the newspaper was an incredibly important, invention but what I try to tell my students all the time is it's not a forever thing. It's not as if it was handed down from the heavens and this is what a newspaper and journalism should be and must be and this is how we should practice it going forward. we have the opportunity now to completely reinvent it as well I think we should. Uh, I was just reading a paper um, from uh, about the UK uh, just printed out today that says that uh, that studied cognitive ability and voting behavior in the brexit votes. And found that um, low cognitive ability in this paper uh, correlated with leave votes. Well, it's really to me what that speaks to is not misinformation, disinformation, and journalism's failures, but more the need for education at a higher level. And what's the role of media as we knew it in an informed population and public discourse? I think we have to re-examine fundamentally these ideas. And, and, and if I have a, one regret about my career as, it, as I come toward air quotes retirement, it's that even though I'm seen as a revolutionary, I wasn't revolutionary enough in rethinking news and the newspaper.
1: Mm. I think there's a lot there to um, take from. And I wonder if we can stay on this point just for a quick follow-up. Um, the idea of local news and not local news. That's a pretty stark binary. Um, to what ex- you know, what role did newspapers play in kind of creating that idea of us versus them?
0: Oh, it's a great question, and I think this goes to Habermas uh, again. There was a there was a project that came out of McGill University about the the creation of the modern public, in which they dared disagree with Habermas, saying that publics came before um, the coffee houses of London with the magazines that fed the conversation there, that they came with the creation of a book and a public around it. They came with the creation of a play uh, where you'd go to watch uh, a play about a corrupt monarch and wonder how that applies to you today. It came with the creation of portraiture once painting left the church and globes where you could say, aha, this is what there looks like and this is what this looks like, here looks like. Um, so this notion of of local I think, is something that we, we treat as quite sacrosanct today. The belief in the United States is that democracy is most in danger because local journalism is in danger, controlled by hedge funds. And I'll salute that flag, but I also think that local is not necessarily just geographical. I think what the internet has taught me more than anything else is that we can create our own communities of our own definitions uh, wherever they may be, and not just based around geography or even language with translation. People can find people who share their needs, their instincts, their their interests, their circumstances anywhere in the world now and feel they're not alone and can join together. You know, if you think about it, it the notion of the nation was greatly strengthened by print, as I talked about earlier with Lutheran language what happens to the notion of the nation today? I think I think that nations and those who lead them are challenged too by the internet. And so I'm not sure what local means anymore. Mm.
1: And I think there's an interesting um, argument to be made here that that might be more familiar if we go back kind of before the parentheses. Um, if we don't have these, as you said, uh, dialects with armies to kind of say, oh, that's what we all are
0: now. Um, well, let me stay there it, for a second, Miranda. Folks, yes, since you please. since you study armies and military, <laughs> do you see any? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find a word other than parallels, but I'll use it. Parallels mm. in the developments of it was, Bacon said that it was the compass and the printing press and gunpowder that were the you know the, the great changing inventions. Uh, mm. And you study one of them, and I studied a different one of them. Um, <laughs> do you see? Um, parallels in the growth of armies and nations and wars around a sense of nationhood and localness?
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of research that does a better job investigating that than I do. Um, but I think that the reason there is so much research on those questions tells us something in and of itself, right? The fact that there's so many people poking around at that, you know, there's no smoke without fire, right? Right. Um And so I think that putting those together and going, okay, well, in this particular time, in this particular place, what are the connections? The fact that that is something that has gotten attention from academia, both now and in decades past, I think that alone tells us quite a lot about the connections between these things.
0: Mm -hmm. I think so.
1: All right. Well, let's, let's, let's Ooh. continue on with the book uh, before we get to pull down a rabbit hole. My apologies.
0: No, that um, was my hole that I dug. Thank
1: you. <laughs> I'd love to, so we've kind of, you laid out a bunch of threads at the beginning that we've been sort of pulling one by one. Um, And we've gotten this idea of sort of the role of print, the parentheses in creating sort of community, what is being disrupted about that sort of how, why are people scared of technology? The idea of generations and time being needed to kind of see what happens next. I'd love to next pull on the thread um, about the conversational nature of communication, of information transfer. If we lost that coming into the parentheses, and we might be getting it back with this idea as you just talked about communities no longer just being geographic, how did we lose it? How did print stop being conversational?
0: So my first thought when I came across the theory of the Gutenberg parentheses, and they kind of say it, was that before the parentheses, before print, society was quite conversational that's how we passed things around that's how we how we did things but as i dug into it i saw to my surprise how much the early days of print were also conversational luther was in conversation with the pope through their books and burnings of them uh, montaigne was trying to decide who he was speaking with was it himself was it his his friends was it the world in the future um uh cervantes is having is 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 putting you inside the minds of people to have conversations uh, uh sir thomas more and 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 erasmus had literal conversations in their books where they they wrote each other letters to be published in their books and dedicated to each other uh so i was fascinated by this conversational nature of media um, and as we discussed in our last conversation with magazines in the coffee houses of london the the tattler and the spectator fed the conversation in the coffee house, but was in turn fed by it uh, in a kind of early feedback loop of media. So, what happened? What changed that? Why do I think the conversation went away? Uh, my guilty party is the mechanization and industrialization of print after 1800. Uh, in this timeline of print, we've gone through already 1454 is Gutenberg, 1500 is the end of the incunabulator age, 1600 is great. Um, innovation uh, with print in culture, 1710 is copyright in the business model, now hit 1800. And it's the first time, amazingly, that there was substantial change to the technology of print. Um, and it's awe-inspiring to realize that, that every word in every language around the world was set in print one letter at a time. The first major change was stereotyping, which was the ability to make a mold of a complete page of print so you can in turn make it again and again and again if you had a bestseller, um, which changed the economics of print radically. You didn't have to reset the type. You didn't have to have a warehouse filled with copies you might not sell. Stereotyping was a huge invention. Also came the steam-powered press and soon the rotary press, which turned out print at huge speed. But paper was still very expensive because it was made from used knickers. It was made from cotton. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, rags were seen as a strategic asset that could not be exported, uh, for example, in in Great Britain. Um, Along comes paper made from wood pulp. The chemistry allowed that to be done. And paper made in rolls instead of sheets through huge machines, the fordrenier machine, that could feed the high-powered press. And then the last machine that was necessary uh, to reach full scale of text and print was the typesetting machine, the linotype, my favorite machine on earth. And that came at the end of the 19th century. So in that period, we end up scaling print. We scale media. We end up with the mass. In our last conversation with the magazine, we also talked about the creation of the business model for the attention economy in 1893 with Frank Muncy's magazine, where he sold the magazine at a loss and made it up on advertising. All those pieces were now in place for mass media. Well, what was lost along the way, I believe, was the conversation, that all media became top-down, one-size-fits-all, or so they, they contended. Um, very little opportunity for the public to speak back, no feedback loop of any sort, other than the performative efforts of letters to the editor or later radio call-in shows. Uh, The public lost its voice. And so what excites me so much about the internet, for good and bad, is that the public regains its voice. The voice has always been there, of course, but now we can be heard. Now we can all publish to the world. Now we can have blogs and posts and tweets and whatever we want to do next. And we can speak to whoever wants to listen or not. And I think it's clear that we've lost the skill of public conversation because we're pretty bad at it right now. Uh, though Hab- going back to Habermas again, he argued that in the coffee houses there was a rational, critical debate. But in my reading about the coffee houses, they weren't so rational or so critical. They had rules on the wall telling people not, not to get into fights. There were in fact fights there. It wasn't all um, peachy uh, as, a, as a public discourse then either. And I think Habermas... Made the mistake, in my view, rather cheeky of me to say, of setting too high a standard for the idea of public discourse, that we think we've lost something along the way, that we used to do it better. Maybe we well indeed did, but it's always a struggle. It's always difficult. It's always about negotiation of disagreement. That's what democracy is. And I think that in the time of mass media, particularly television and broadcast, we lost that ability. And we thought that we had to be one in one shared experience. Back here in my office is a book from all, of all the newspapers in America in the year 1900. And it is thick. There were scores of them in New York alone. There were different publications for different communities, different senses of local, different viewpoints. And we're returning to a world where that's that's become the norm, where everybody can have their blog. And we now call that Um, filter bubbles and echo chambers were scared of that. But I think instead, it's a more natural uh, state of the world. It's it's, it's pre the parenthesis of the mechanization and industrialization of print. We've got to figure out what to do about this. We've got to value, I think, the fact that we can now hear voices and perspectives and lived lived experiences we couldn't hear in mass media. In the United States, our most famous newsreader, news anchor was Walter Cronkite who ended every broadcast saying, and that's the way it is. And for so many Americans, it wasn't the way it was. That was a myth. The myth of mass media was that there was a shared experience. It was never true. And so I think the internet exposes this to us. It exposes us to ourselves. And we don't know what to do with it yet. But I hope and presume we'll figure it out. Now, part of my presumption in this entire book project is that we have choices ahead of us and we could make bad choices. We could blow it badly. We could do a terrible job. But we eventually figured out print through a few wars, 30 Years' War, Peasants' War, other problems, but we figured it out to our benefit. I think we'll figure this out, but but as we've already discussed about the timeline, it may be four or five generations ahead of us before we do.
1: So not to take too much away from the optimism that you just ended with and um, that things could work out um i'd love to ask you about an area ad- uh, in which at least i think this is one of perhaps the risk areas where things are perhaps more likely to go wrong via this mechanism and that of course is um the history of censorship as you mentioned already with the uk law that passed recently this is still very much a hot topic what is free speech who gets to regulate it what do you think we can learn by going back to the beginning of the parentheses and think thinking about censorship around the creation of the printing press, around the evolution of what it enabled to take to today's debates about free speech?
0: I think the short answer is we can learn the futility of censorship, the futility of trying to control people's speech and thus their minds through that. Uh, I think it just doesn't work. <clears throat> but I also think that... Um, We need to reimagine the definitions of censorship itself. I just listened to a great lecture online, which you can find online by Ada Palmer from the University of Chicago, about censorship, in which she said, and I think she's right, that there's no clear line delineating moderation or editing from censorship. In the mind of many a censor, uh, they're doing good work. Robert Darton has a wonderful book about censorship in which he, he talks about the censors of of the NCN regime in France, uh, basically blurbing books they liked and tr- thinking they were trying to improve them in the culture, that it wasn't, to their mind, an evil act. Uh, Darton visited with censors in East Germany as the wall fell, and, and they believed that they were um, helping to build the culture of the DDR. So censorship is in the... is in the mind and motive of the censor. The damage censorship does is obviously in those who are censored and those whose voices aren't heard. But I think these days we we come to this presumption. We hear Elon Musk call himself a free speech absolutist, which is such an incredible bull, um, that people think they have a, people like Musk and the far right in the U.S. think they have a right to not only speak, but to be heard and to be amplified, and I think that's wrong. Um, I I get very concerned when government gets involved in speech, I'm an American, I believe in the First Amendment, I see the benefits of it, that's my perspective, which I know is very different from other other countries and other cultures. Uh, But um, in the US now, we're seeing kind of a reverse censorship where uh, the right wing is trying to compel platforms to carry their noxious speech. And I think we have to keep in mind that choice is also speech. When you decide what podcast to make, when The the Guardian decides what stories or columns to print, when a publisher decides what books to publish, they're exercising their own rights of freedom of expression by the choices they make. And were they to be forced, compelled to carry speech, where Kath Viner told that she had to carry a, a Boris Johnson column, that clearly would not be freedom of expression for her and The Guardian. And um, so I think we're grappling right now with these ideas, as you say, of free speech and freedom of expression. I think the internet is a phenomenal vehicle for free expression. Um, and I want to protect that from efforts to control it. In the UK legislation, I just, I just attended a um, briefing with Ofcom and others about the Online Safety Act, now that it's an act. And in the early drafts of the act, there was a requirement, a duty of care to take down, and I quote, legal but harmful speech. And there was much proper derision of this idea for if speech is declared by the government to be harmful and must be taken down, it is de facto illegal. Well, that provision left the law when it came to adults, but it's still in there for children. And so the idea that platforms have a a, a requirement under penalty of huge financial uh, risk, and some even wanted jail, to take down legal but harmful speech affecting young people is an incredible hubris on behalf of government. It is in local parentis to the entire population uh, thinking that government can decree this, they can decree it vaguely, calling it harmful speech, they can then require intermediaries, the stationer's company in the old days of Britain, or now uh, the platforms, to um, enforce their wishes. Uh, it's a natural, I think, reflex once again when new speech comes in, but we see the futility of it. Uh, and and um, there was a wonderful Rand paper by Paul Dewar in 1998, the same year that Google came along, also inspired by Elizabeth Eisenstein who said that those countries, those nations that tried to control print and control speech out of it were left behind in much of development. And he argued, and this is the RAND Corporation, that one must rush toward the unintended consequences and learn what to do with them and how to handle them rather than thinking we can control them all. So this effort at censorship uh, that occurs from government, I think, is perilous to our learning. And in the book, I quote at length, Areopagitica, uh, which is a wonderful call for uh, the need to have citizens exercise their own brains with truth and falsity. And I think we have to reread it today and relearn its lessons today.
1: I'd love to ask you about something perhaps Well, very much building off of what you just finished with, um, but perhaps overly more optimistic than (laughs) um, worrying about particular laws and the trends they're in. I think it's very important to highlight them, um, but not just talk about uh, the risks and also the potential. So you do mention in the book that there's a particular bit of the internet that you see as having promise or a glimmer of collaboration, bringing back that conversational element And you highlight TikTok. Can you take us through
0: this? (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, Proudly so. Uh, I'll I'll be mocked in many quarters, I imagine, for for liking little old TikTok. But I I, I think it's an amazing platform because I think it's the first that I've seen that begins to fully explore the opportunities on the internet for collaboration. Um, After 9-11, I started blogging. I was at the World Trade Center. I loved what it enabled. I learned a great deal by the power of the link that enabled conversation among people. But my my words happen in my space, your words happen in your space. Um, uh, Twitter, we all did it in Twitter's space, which was fun until Elon Musk took it over. Um, TikTok has similar perils of being a company that is singularly owned and singularly owned in China. However, I think we need to look and see what people are doing with this. Um, and and the sea shanties are a silly little example, but when people could, one person could come in and sing the soprano line, one person could come in and add the bass line and another could come in and add the alto line and so on and so on. And you ended up with a chorus. Or there was a silly little example during the pandemic when, when Broadway in, the US, in New York closed down uh, one person came along and put in an, an earworm, a little tune that she'd made up for the character Ratatouille, uh, the, the Disney character. And others came in on TikTok and started to create um, whole songs and scripts. And uh, eventually they created Ratatouille, the TikTok musical, which Disney didn't try to stop. And in fact, it raised a million dollars for actors who were then out of work, Um these are silly examples. I don't mean to say that they're the future of culture. Uh, so a lot of the early novels were crap too, but we, you know, we, we, we developed the genre and developed the culture. And I think what I see in TikTok is the beginnings of cultural collaboration. There's a wonderful book out right now by Taylor Lorenz, uh, one of the few reporters on technology who I think is doing a good job at the Washington Post. Her book is called Extremely Online, and she tracks what are known as now as creators or influencers. And I was wistful at the start of it, Miranda, when, I, when she talked about mommy bloggers and my early days of blogging after 9-11 and how we make a little money, you know, enough to buy a latte once in a while with ads and how cool that was we could do that. And then it goes forward where the the, the creators become um. Video people on YouTube, and then they become known as influencers, and then they become the objects of advertising, and it's it's almost sad in the end, uh, wistful again, because their motives are of of creating a culture, which I think is so wonderful that rather than being told what the culture is by Hollywood or told what fashion is by Vogue, the young people can create their own damn culture today, but along comes the opportunity for money. And that's a wonderful thing. If they can make money doing this, I'm very happy. But the present business model of the internet inherited from media, inherited from mass media, the attention economy, has these young people uh, in Taylor Lorenz's reporting, having to become more and more and more outrageous and corrupted in a sense, not by the internet, not by the technology, uh, not even by the attention or celebrity but instead by the advertising wealth that might follow for a little while. And so it makes me ask in the end, if we all become media, are we all corrupted? So my optimism is tempered a bit there.
1: Mm, Fair enough. But I think maybe this will entice some people to go check out TikTok if they haven't already, if we're looking for some amount of optimism here. Now that we've pulled a number of threads um, from the beginning and kind of intertwined them in various ways, if we sort of step back towards the end, sort of as we're coming out of Gutenberg's parenthesis at whatever speed, what do you think are some of the perhaps most important or most urgent choices or questions that we need to be thinking about going forward?
0: In the last half of the Gutenberg parenthesis, I try to tackle four ideas. One is, can we recapture our notion of conversation and culture and leave behind the idea that it is content, that it is property, a tradable asset, that it instead is something we can do together and collaborate on? Second, I'm eager to leave behind the idea of the mass, which I think is fundamentally an insult to the public. It is a way not to know people, not to understand them on their own terms. Uh, and it's what we did in all of media. And that's what fascinates me most. Third, I think we have to, as another discussion about censorship, uh, recognize the reflex of the powerful of the past to control the speech of the young in the future and try to resist that reflex, whether it's through regulation or through business models or through public pressure. Uh, This is not to say that we have to listen to idiots or to fascists. We should ignore them. We should, in fact, call them out. We should um, decide what is quality. One anecdote from the book that fascinates me is that the supposed first call for censorship in the history of print is said to have occurred in 1470 when Niccolò Perotti, an Italian translator, was much offended by translation of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope, it's a wonderful letter, beseeching him, saying something must be done, right? It sounds very familiar. Something must be done. You must appoint a censor, Perotti said, someone who's erudite and brilliant to, to, to approve all the work that would come off these presses in Rome. And how quaint and silly that is to think that, that it scales, uh, that you could control it. But as I thought about this, Miranda, I realized that he wasn't, in fact, seeking censorship or a censor that what Perotti was doing was anticipating the creation of the institutions of editing and publishing that would follow to try to assure quality and authority and credibility and artistry in print for a half millennium to follow. So that's the fourth lesson I look at, is what institutions need to be updated or replaced uh, as we go forward. And I think that Our first reflex in this time of abundant speech is to worry about it, is to say, oh, my God, something must be done, to play whack-a-mole with the bad speech, especially after the 2016 Brexit and Trump elections, uh, to say that misinformation and disinformation is ruining an otherwise peachy society and we have to get rid of it. Well, no, um, that's simplistic. On the first hand, and we're never going to succeed at getting rid of all bad speech. And that's, that's the folly of the online safety bill in the UK and others like it across the world. Instead, we should be anticipating what Perotti anticipated, and that is to try to create the institutions that will make it their mission to discover and recommend and support and nurture quality, authority, and artistry in this new world with the new possibilities we have to create things in new ways, to anticipate when the Montaigne essay and the Cervantes novel and the Shakespeare plays will be on us in new ways. And that's the ultimate optimism that I hope to have. Again, we could blow it. We could, we could regulate the internet out of existence. We could control it to the nth degree. We could let it be controlled by um, nihilistic narcissists like Elon Musk and Sam Altman and whoever else is in control of them today. We could blow this miserably, or we have the opportunity to recognize the printing press in everyone's hands and what that means. Um, I want to do one last postscript if I may, which is that when I wrote a book, my first book some years ago called What Would Google Do? I uh, said stupidly, I will say now, uh, that the book needed to be updated and printable and, and, and linkable and clickable and searchable And and changeable. And and I said at the time that it wouldn't happen because we were too in love with the book. It was too sacrosanct and we had to get over the book. In this book, in the Gutenberg parenthesis, I recant that. And in, in having studied the development of the book, I come to so much respect it as an institution of society. And it is the institution that we will judge our future culture against. It will not go away. In the end, the last words of the book, I'll give you a spoiler, are, let the book be the book.
1: Well, as a host on the New Books Network, um, <laughs> I quite liked that ending, I must admit. Um, and as we've literally, you've just told us the last words of the book. Um, so we're pretty much, that that takes us to the end of the book bit. Um, but I do have one final question, if you'll allow me. Um, What might you be working on now that this book is out there, available to provoke listeners and readers? Is there anything you're working on you want to preview?
0: Well, thank you for asking. Uh, Of course I am, yes. Um, So I'm I'm, I'm now in the final stages of the line edit for a book that will be coming out next year from Basic Books. And we have a title as of a week ago, which is about the internet and moral panics, uh, media's moral panic over the internet. Much of the things we've talked about brought to present tense. So the title is The Web We Weave, um, why we must reclaim the internet from moguls, misanthropes, and mass panic and, and moral panic. Pardon me, I'm still getting it ingrained. Oh, in nice my head. alliteration. Uh, yeah, I love alliteration. Uh, I adore alliteration. I should say. Um, and so I'm working on, on on that right now. And obviously, it changes as we go. You know, the, the recent activity around open AI, I had to I had to change a few tenses in the book. Uh, but there, I'm trying to explore the choices that we have in present tense. Um, And remind us that the internet is a gift. It's a tremendous benefit and it's up to us to take it back from people like Elon Musk and build it. And then the next book after that that I hope to work on is a a passion project. I mentioned earlier the linotype, which is a fascinating, have you ever seen a linotype, Miranda? Do you know what it is?
1: Uh I know what it is and I think I've seen it but I'm not 100% sure that the image in my head is the right one.
0: It's it's a it's a it's an amazing Rube Goldberg ridiculous gigantic thing that set type. Uh, and did it in, in a new way and changed the world and was the last machine needed for the entry into the age of mass media. Again, I'm fascinated by this idea of the mass. And it's a fascinating story with all kinds of great characters. Mark Twain invested in a competitor to the Linotype and and went bankrupt. And and it is said lost his sense of humor, uh, which would be a tragic loss. Uh, There's great uh, robber baron characters in it. The inventor himself, Otmar Mergenthaler, died tragically young. So unfortunately, it can't be a biography of him. But he was kicked out of his own company by one of the robber barons. Uh, there's It's a story of the creation of mass media, of celebrity, of this new culture, uh, this mechanized, industrialized media. So that's a love project that I hope to work on after that.
1: Ooh, well, two exciting projects. Thank you for previewing them. Um, before... Well, before we let listeners go, I suppose, um, I'm going to remind you all who have been listening the title of the book we've been discussing in case you want to go check out all the details that we were not able to include in our more highlights tour of it. It's called The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. Jeff, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast.
0: Miranda, I cannot thank you enough. I'm very grateful for this conversation.